Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm delighted to welcome to the studio today Dan Lashoff. Dan is the director of WRI US. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you. And Christina De Concini, who is WRI's director of government affairs. Christina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Our topic today is something that has caused a lot of excitement in the U.S. climate community, the Green New Deal. Um, I have a particular interest in it because my daughter is among the Green New Deal activists in San Francisco um, organizing watches, so I hear about it from her. And of course, here in WRI, we're quite interested to see this kind of activism, which I would say, and we may have different views, is the kind of uh, movement that we're going to need to get the kind of ambition we want to see to have a rapid transformation. Um, Dan has been in the climate policy field for a long time, has written a terrific blog, which we're going to discuss today, Five Things to Look For in the Green New Deal. Dan, you wrote this blog before the Green New Deal resolution by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, energy champion Senator Ed Markey was available, and you said five things we could look for, but we've now looked back at the blog post, and it uh, stands up very well. These are the things we're going to want to look for going forward. So that's what we're going to discuss today. Before we begin, um, Dan, I'd like you to tell us just a little bit about yourself, how you came to be the uh, WRI director for the U.S. Uh, well, thanks, Lawrence. I joined WRI in July as U.S. director after spending four years working out in California, mostly on state policy, uh, and before that uh, was working on federal climate policy for uh, more than 20 years at the Natural Resources Defense Council. I'm delighted to be here. I wanted to get back into the discussion of how we move forward with federal policy and how U.S. federal policy interacts with all the great work that's going on at the state and local level. And so this is a great conversation to be in. Well, and we're delighted to have you here, and I'm delighted to have you on the show and hope that you will be a frequent guest, that we'll have you back again soon. Christina, you and I go back, well, I should say, you know, four years I've been at WRI, and I felt like you were a buddy the moment we arrived because, among other things, we're both passionate about putting a price on carbon. But tell us about you. Um, so I've been at WRI for about 10 years, and before that, I spent 20 years, I'm a lawyer, uh, representing refugees, asylum applicants, and immigrants in detention and other places across the United States. And I really uh, loved that work, and I wanted to make a change and start working on some of the push factors that force refugees to flee. And um, that's how I came to work on climate change, because it is going to be one of the biggest factors that dislocates uh, poor and vulnerable communities. So I, um, my focus here is on climate change and energy issues, and I'm delighted to be part of this conversation because we certainly need a lot more attention on this issue to get the action that's needed and hasn't been happening. And Christina, you represent WRI on the Hill, and I must say you know more about how Congress works than anybody I've ever met. So whenever I have a question about Congress, you're the person I go to. Um, Dan, you should meet we're some start, more people. We're going to start with something pretty basic. Many of our listeners will have heard a little bit about the Green New Deal. They might have read one or two newspaper articles. What is the Green New Deal? The Green New Deal is a concept that says we need to transition to a clean energy economy and get to zero net emissions of greenhouse gases that are changing our climate as quickly as possible. And we need to do that in a way that creates good jobs and uh, reduces income inequality at the same time. And why has that tapped into so much 
political energy. I mean, this is an argument that WI has been making for a long time. Suddenly, people are talking about it on Capitol Hill. What's happened? Well, I have children who are millennials, and when they look at the world, they think my generation really screwed up in two main ways. One is we didn't deal with climate change, and that's a mess they're going to have to clean up. And second, income inequality has gotten way worse in this country. Uh, and they've kind of entered the economy at, in the middle of the Great Recession. So they see these as the two huge challenges that we have to face, and the Green New Deal brings them together in a way that has just generated an enormous amount of energy uh, from young people to uh, really push our political system to deal with these two problems that have been, been kicked down the road for so long. In the opening of the blog, which I'll mention again, you wrote before the resolution was released, you said, you know, the Green New Deal um, can't mean anything anyone wants it to or it'll come to mean nothing at all. But at that point, we didn't really have a clear uh, definition. Now we have a resolution. I believe, um, Christina, it's got what, how many sponsors, official sponsors? I I think 60, but honestly, I haven't seen the latest count. So it could be. Somewhere around 60, both in House and Senate. And, um, no, not, it's 60 in the House, uh-huh. and I don't know the number in the Senate. I think it's four or five so far, but they're working to get more people on it, and it's an ongoing process. But I have to say I'm not following that minute by minute. Okay, so it has it has co-sponsors in both places. Absolutely. And it was authored by, as we mentioned, by both Markey and uh, AOC. Um, Dan, when the resolution came out, your first impression when you read it, were you thinking, what did you think? Well, I thought the resolution did a great job of focusing on the aspirational goals that have generated this energy, uh, and it does provide some specifics in terms of goals. It doesn't provide any details of, in terms of how to achieve those goals, but I think that's fine at this stage, and that that is a conscious choice that was made by uh, the sponsors and, and, the, and the groups that they're working with. So I think it... Uh, does a good job of focusing energy and saying this is the direction the country needs to go in. Christina, a word from you about the role of resolutions as compared to legislation. And then we're going to get into Dan's five criteria for what we're going to be looking for. Resolutions are quite common in um, Congress, and they are aspirational and point in a direction that the sponsors want to go. Many times they're very successful if they can get a lot of people to pile on to them to really give energy and direction to lawmakers on what to do. It, it isn't a bill. It won't become law or enforceable, but that's fine because it was designed to be a framework of where we need to go, and the legislators will end up putting meat on those bones and legislation forward. Terrific. Uh, With that, we're off to the races here. Number one in your blog, Dan, what does clean energy mean and how quickly can we get to 100%? Where did the resolution come out in its aspirations and how quickly can we get to 100%? Well, the resolution gives a specific answer to that. uh, It defines clean as zero carbon uh, with a focus on renewables, but allowing uh, other zero carbon electricity sources to, to be part of the mix, which I think is a good decision. Uh, it's something that WRI has done a lot of research on. And this this would be just to be put a make it clear would be nuclear, um, hydro. When we say non renewables, what else are we talking about? Uh, uh, so, what we see when we look at how you get to a zero carbon electricity grid is 
mostly wind and solar, but a, an important uh, potential role for uh, nuclear power. Certainly the existing plants uh, contribute, uh, hydropower, and uh, perhaps natural gas with carbon capture and storage as uh, a, an additional resource that allows you to balance supply and demand on an hour-by-hour -hour basis throughout the year. And so the resolution's uh, uh, target date? The resolution's target date is to get to zero emissions from the electricity sector in 10 years, which is definitely ambitious. Uh, the most ambitious state targets uh, call for achieving that by 2040, which I think is a useful benchmark against which to judge this. This is basically saying, let's do it 10 years faster than that. I am not aware of any analysis that says how to do that. Um, it certainly would be a challenge, but physically, is it possible? I, I think so. It would require installing uh, clean energy technologies at roughly 10 times the, the maximum pace we've done it in the U.S. Uh, in the past, but um, that's not physically impossible. Whether it, it makes sense to push that quickly and whether you could get the politics behind it is another question. Um, this reminds me of the fact that it is called the Green New Deal, so it's framed as something very ambitious, as when the nation responded to the Great Depression and then subsequently um, geared up to fight World War II. This would be a national mobilization kind of a response. Well, that's right. That's what they're they're saying, and that's uh, with that level of response, actually, I think during World War II, something like 40 to 60 percent of our GMP was uh, focused on the war effort. On the electricity side, we're not talking about nearly that much. Maybe 5% of the GNP uh, would be what's the order of magnitude of the investment needed to get to 100% clean electricity in 10 years. So a lot compared with what we're doing now, uh, not that much compared with a World War II-style mobilization. This leads us nicely to your second point, which is um, infrastructure. What kind of infrastructure do we need to support a clean energy economy. And obviously, infrastructure is going to be central to this. Um, what does the resolution say? And what would we be looking for as the resolution moves into sort of more specific, uh, eventually, to some kind of legislation? Well, the resolution points to two types of infrastructure, both of which I think are absolutely needed. One is around how to make our communities more resilient to the effects of climate change that we can no longer avoid. Uh, and the second is uh, infrastructure that would uh, support and facilitate the transition to clean energy. It doesn't go into specifics, but uh, it's clear that we will need things like electric vehicle charging infrastructure as we move to clean vehicles. We'll need a more robust electricity transmission system. We'll need a smarter grid so that we can accommodate both flexible loads for electricity as well as variable uh, energy sources in a, in a smart way. Uh, so there are a range of things uh, in the energy sector and then, of course, in transportation, which is usually the focus of infrastructure bills. Uh, but this is saying, well, as we invest in that kind of infrastructure, it needs to be consistent with and supportive of the transition to a clean energy economy, which I think makes a lot of sense. Your third point, your third question really is, you know, should the Green New Deal include a price on carbon or a carbon tax? And um, 
this is something that Christine and I have been tracking quite closely. It's something that is embraced uh, by people who are opposed to regulation and want to see market-based solutions. So there's quite strong support among economists, somewhat less so, I think, in some of the activist supporters of the Green New Deal. Where did the resolution come out on that, and what's your view about the importance of putting a price on carbon? Well, the resolution is silent on this question. Uh, I, I'm sure quite intentionally so. Uh, my view is that a price on carbon is a very important uh, cornerstone of any comprehensive policy to move us towards clean energy, but certainly not the only thing we need to do. Uh, I think the resolution, uh, part of the point that they're trying to make is that they don't want to limit ambition to what can be achieved with a carbon tax, either in terms of uh, the emission reductions that are needed or the amount of revenue that might be generated for that for investment in infrastructure and other things. And I think that's a, uh, a an important point to make. I, I don't think our ambition should be limited by the level of a carbon tax that is politically feasible, but the value of uh, a carbon tax or other way of, of pricing carbon, in fact, what the states have mostly done is our cap and trade systems, uh, is is very high because it's a very efficient way to uh, move the economy towards clean energy. You, you said something to me in a hallway conversation that, that really struck me, which is when society decides it needs to do something important, the first question isn't how are we going to pay for it? that you do need to pay for it. You need to generate uh, revenue. There are many advantages to a price on carbon, which I'm going to ask Christina about in a moment, um, in terms of sending a clear signal. But the point is, it's not as if we absolutely have to pay for everything. We can have bonds. We can have, I don't want to paraphrase you, but you, you, your response really made a deep impression on me. Well, I think this is one of the key points that the supporters of the Green New Deal resolution, uh, both the sponsors and, uh, and the organizations they're working with, is trying to make, which is that, uh, for example, when uh, Congress passed the trillion-dollar tax cut, uh, they didn't constrain themselves by how to pay for it. And uh, when we decide that we have an existential threat and climate change is an existential threat, then we need to respond to it. And how you ultimately balance the books is, is important, but it shouldn't constrain our ambition. I, I agree with that. I want to digress just for a minute away from the Green New Deal into carbon pricing. One of the things that has always appealed to me about it is you create a revenue flow that then creates a constituency for continued pricing of carbon, which sends the right signal to the economy. And, Christina, you've been part of a very interesting left-right coalition on carbon pricing. Um, can you say something about the, the movement around a carbon price, which is – I don't know that it's – competing with the Green New Deal, but there's significant momentum behind that as well. Um, sure. I agree with what Dan said. I, and I, and I have talked to um, Rihanna Gunwright, who last week said in a public setting that a price on carbon could be part of it. So I think we're in agreement. And, and I who is Rihanna Gunwright? Some people will know and oh, some yes. won't. She's one of the leaders of New Consensus and that is working on the policy prescription around the Green New Deal. And 
if you're interested, you can follow her on Twitter. But she was asked that question. And I think that the point Dan made is the point that others are trying to make, that a carbon price alone is not sufficient. And WRI very much believes that and has written a lot about that and knows a lot about that. So we think it's, um, we I guess we think it's an essential piece and others might not, but we're in agreement that it's not going to be sufficient. And so I think that Dan is correct, that they don't want to be in, be seen as embracing something that can't do enough. And we all know that can't do enough, but it's very, it's an important piece. Um, Dan, your fourth point, how do we ensure that Green New Deal benefits all Americans? And we said at the top that one of the reasons this has unleashed such uh, political energy, especially among young people, is this melding together of social justice and equity concerns and climate action. Um, it's not an area that is core to WRI's work, but it's certainly something that we have some um, ideas about. What do you think? Well, I think the first point is that we know that climate change uh, impacts vulnerable communities first and worst. And so addressing climate change is an essential component of trying to uh, have a society that is more uh, just and, and equal. Um, in terms of uh, people's quality of life. Uh, the other thing that we need, we recognize is that you could imagine policies to address climate change that exacerbate income inequality, uh, or you could design those policies that would have the same effect on terms of uh, affecting climate change in a way that actually ameliorates income inequality. And so I think the Green New Deal resolution is being very explicit about uh, the goal of making sure that the solution to climate change doesn't exacerbate a, a problem that climate change itself exacerbates. And uh, exactly how to do that, of course, uh, is to be fleshed out, and some aspects of that will be well beyond what WRI is expert on, other aspects of it. For example, how you might use the revenue from pricing carbon to uh, ensure that that net effect is uh, progressive or uh, not exacerbating income inequality is something that we've uh, worked on. That leads very nicely to the fifth question, which is, what happens to fossil fuel industry workers? And on that, we do have some, around the carbon price, I believe, some pretty um, substantial analysis on how to make them whole. Well, I think there the, the obvious point is if you're transitioning to a 100% clean energy economy, there are currently uh, hundreds of thousands of, of, of people who work in uh, the fossil fuel industry, although it's worth noting that even today there are three times as many people working in clean energy as there are in fossil fuels. Um, but there are specific communities that are particularly dependent uh, on uh, the fossil fuel industry, whether those are uh, uh, coal mining areas of uh, West Virginia or Kentucky or uh, areas where the, the best jobs might be in a refinery those jobs uh, will go away as we transition to clean energy and being thoughtful and conscious about uh, how those workers are treated, protecting pensions and health care uh, and uh, investing in clean energy is something that, that needs to be part of any 
comprehensive climate policy. It's something that, that we've looked at in the U.S. and also something, uh, frankly, that where there are good examples around the world. Uh, for example, I point out in the blog, uh, Spain recently reached an agreement with unions uh, in their mining sector for a actually rather quick phase-out of mining in Spain, and part of that deal was providing uh, pension support uh, so that those minor, miners would uh, would not be left holding the bag. Terrific. Um, we're just about out of time. In closing, Christina, I want to ask you if you could share with our listeners what you're going to be watching for around the Green New Deal in the next couple of months. I'll be watching to see what the committees that can write the legislation on all these different topics in it move forward in terms of the process is usually hearings, and including in the new select committee, and then drafting legislation to try to articulate how you would achieve the goals outlined in the resolution. And Dan, same question for you. What are you going to be keeping your eye on? Since well, Christine is going to keep her eye on the legislation and keep us informed, you're going to be looking at other stuff, I suspect. I think there's a lot of analysis to come about how you would achieve these goals, uh, what that looks like, how quickly could you really do it. Um, we'll be looking at that. And then I think the other question is how does this debate play out as we move into the election season for 2020? And we've seen a number of candidates already uh, stake out a position. And so having this be part of that debate, I think, is very healthy for uh, the prospects of moving forward with uh, federal climate policy. Well, thank you both for joining me. As always, I learn a lot whenever I talk with both of you. It's been terrific to have you on the show, and we'd hope to have you back again soon. Thank you. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. You can find the WI podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, and other places where you get your listening. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks for listening.